0: It's Friday, August 11th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, And if you go after me, I'm coming after you. That is my solemn vow to you, the listeners of The Gist. No, it's a statement that Donald Trump tweeted. Well, they call it Truths on Truth Social. And that his lawyer said, no, that's just classic political speech. And that Jack Smith, his prosecutor, one of his prosecutors, says, eh. a little problematic. They brought it all up to the judge including some other issues and she said I do want to issue a word of caution. I intend to ensure the orderly administration of justice in this case as I would any other case and even arguably ambiguous statements by the parties or their counsels, and that even arguably ambiguous statements by the parties or their counsels could be considered an attempt to quote intimidate witnesses or prejudice potential jurors which would require her to take action. She added, I caution you and your clients take special care in your public statements. In this case, I will take whatever means are necessary to protect the integrity of the proceedings. And you know, Donald Trump loves nothing if not the integrity of the proceedings. In other presidential related legal news, Hunter Biden, the only white man who Republicans don't want to have a gun, Hunter Biden has now a special counsel. It's gotten to that point. The deal's not going through, and his counsel has become quite special. Over on Truth Social, there was a poll. Question, do you think the Hunter Biden special counsel appointment is part of a cover-up? Yes, no, or not sure. Now to view the results, I had to participate, so I said not Sure. I was among the 1% or 5 votes who said not sure. There are 4 votes or 1% who said no. And somehow on Truth Social, 784 or 99% of the votes do in fact think that the Hunter Biden special counsel is part of a cover-up. Now, we're not sure what the general consensus is on Truth Social about what the judge just said to Trump. I'm not even sure in the mainstream media because the New York Times played it as, Judge limits Trump's ability to share Jan 6th evidence. During a 90-minute hearing in Washington, Judge Tanya Chutkan also warned the former president against any attempt to intimidate witnesses or prejudice potential jurors. The Wall Street Journal headline that one, Judge calls for limits on Trump's speech rights in January 6th case. Former president won't get special treatment, Judge says at Washington hearing over imposition of protective order. Actually, the head and the subhead seem a little bit in conflict. So what is it? Is Trump getting the old screw job? Or did Jack Smith lose? Both are very attractive to the truth social crowd. And in fact, the main purveyors of truths on truth social are clashing, developing Obama Judge Tanya Chutkan to gag Trump in middle of presidential campaign, says Gateway Pundit, But justthenews.com, another popular purveyor of quote-unquote truth, says judge sides with Trump on protective order, handing Jack Smith an early defeat. I suppose he'll be gagged in the sense that the tweets or postings on Truth Social are truths. He'll be free, in fact, to pursue his constitutionally protected right to say any old thing, including admissions of wrongdoing and the never-ending diatribe of disqualifying arguments that if they don't land him in the big house, will at least hopefully keep him out of the White House. On the show today, how the Barbie movie actually gets it pretty much right when it comes to Mattel's corporate governance, but also kind of wrong when it nods to gay boys only via a Ken doll with a cock ring. But first, Dylan Marin is a host of the podcast series, Conversations with People Who Hate Me. He also wrote for season three of Ted Lasso, and his latest project is the podcast series, The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks, which dives into the story of the Star Wars character who faced huge online backlash. We will discuss how Jar Jar was one of the first big internet memes. We will discuss some of the racism that was included in the backlash, the actor who played Jar Jar, and we'll even consider if any of the criticism might've been valid. Dylan Marin. up next.
1: Oh, moi, moi, I love you. You almost got us killed. Are you brainless? I spec. The ability to speak does not make
0: you intelligent. Now get out of here. No, no, missus, Stay. Mr. called Jar Jar Binks. Mr. your humble servant. That won't be necessary. Oh, but it is. It is demanded by the gods, it is. So, for the uninitiated, or newbies, as they're sometimes called, especially when dealing with things like science fiction or the internet, we have Jar Jar Binks, a seminal figure in the history of Star Wars movies and the history of people hating fictional characters. In fact, he is, as per the framing of Dylan Maron, the first main character on the internet. So the idea of the main character is there's this concept that every day the internet has a main character, and your job is not to be that, because the main character is neither heroic nor on a Joseph Campbellian quest. The main character is a punching bag, and Jar Jar Binks became that. But Dylan Maron, the host of the Conversations with People Who Hate Me podcast, is out with a limited news series called... The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks. And it goes way deeper than one floppy-eared Gungan. Dylan, welcome to The Gist.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So your thesis is that Jar Jar Binks is the first internet main character. And I think you may be right. But I was thinking about this. And there are other... Similar figures who our culture or society beat up on. And I was thinking specifically about Barney the dinosaur. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> Welcome to Grandpa's Farm, everybody! Oh, there are lots of things to see and do.
1: <laughs>
0: and there was the whole movie Death to Smoochie, which is essentially a riff on people wanting to beat up a purple dinosaur
2: friends friends we all got friends got me and i got you friends friends we all need friends it's our pals that get us
0: and then charles barkley did a sketch on snl where he was punching barney the dinosaur and people love this but i guess the distinction between that and jar jar is there wasn't an internet and even though the history of people adults beating up kids characters is a long and storied history it wasn't Internet driven, right? Completely.
2: I think, I mean, you know, obviously that's a that's a bold claim to make, which is why in the first episode, like I pose it as a question. Because I I do still think that whereas there have been many of culture and society's main characters before that, someone who is kind of an apolitical punching bag, you know, someone who uh, people who becomes the butt of a joke, and nobody's that serious about it, but in their quote-unquote not being serious about it, it becomes incredibly serious, especially for the person on the receiving end of it. But I do think Jar Jar Binks intersected with the infiltration of the internet at a very specific point in history that does, I think, put him in the running to, to be the first.
0: And so then is your contention – well, for people who haven't listened to conversations with people who hate me, uh, they should know that a subtext of that is that the internet may in many ways make us, turn us into our worst selves. So we have this kind of vitriol that existed before the internet uh, that Barney received or sometimes a real life story of the day that will be passed around. There's some sheriff, he investigates and arrests a mother who let her kids get sunburned and he comes in for kind of uh, disapproval. All right, so that's the mocked story of the day. But if you examine that phenomenon pre-internet, are you saying it's not as dire and maybe you wouldn't be as condemnatory of the people back then who are making fun of Barney because none of that had the ability to go viral and become this kind of mob pile on.
2: Well, I think virality definitely existed pre-internet, you know, memes traveled in the way, you know, that, uh, I'm a, child of the nineties and you know, we were all drawing that S, you know, the three lines that then connected the S what's it called? Uh, when you, it's like a very fun thing. We all drew on the margins of our loose leaf paper. Anyway, all to say that is a meme in, in, in the pre internet days, um, playing the game mash is a meme in the pre internet days. And it went viral in that sense. So I think, you know, something like hating Barney, definitely, um, you know, I would say went viral. As we all know, the internet gave us this unprecedented sense of scaling up so quickly that allows those memes to skyrocket. Um, So yes, it existed beforehand, um, but I think the internet both dehumanizes us to the people we're talking about, um, or dehumanizes the people we're talking about to say that more clearly, And it also allows us to not realize how big the choir is that we're joining in on.
0: Right, right. I see all that. The other Jar Jar specific point, and you get to it a little bit, is that there are many reasons to validly criticize Jar Jar. Mm -hmm. uh, And then you talk about, and I'm going to talk about it with you, one or two reasons that you actually subscribe to. But there are is an overall reason that jar jar became the symbol the synecdoche of the failure of the phantom menace Mm. it was just poor storytelling and the very first guy that you interview a guy who slept online to see it and then didn't like the movie and then blamed himself for not liking Mm -hmm. the movie that is because the movie was extremely flawed and poor storytelling but it comes out in a way, if the special effects were off, people could point to that. So what seemed off, something seemed off about the movie. It didn't give people the magical feeling that the earlier movies did. And the one really discordant um, figure within the movie, the one that seemed very, very much out of place was Jar Jar. So Jar Jar becomes the symbol for the thing they can't admit to themselves, which is George Lucas has lost it. And they made a bad movie. It just becomes Jar Jar is the bad thing in this movie.
2: Well, I also think nostalgia is playing a huge factor in this, um, right?
0: And that and that informs. I don't know if it was in the show, but the whole oh, "you stole my childhood" meme.
2: A lot of people certainly felt um, that you know Jar Jar quote unquote ruined their childhood. Um, I I do think that like nostalgia is this drug, right? Where we where we view the past through these rose colored glasses, and it was so interesting, you know, the overall tenor of the criticism uh, that was coming from the camp of people who said Jar Jar was annoying is that they were saying I have loved this movie since I was a kid, Jar Jar turned this into a kid's movie without necessarily realizing what they just said, which is like oh, well that's so interesting because the movie was also made for you 15 years ago, the you of 15 years ago, and so I do think that like nostalgia I think specifically in this story nostalgia played such a huge um role um I also think it's okay if someone doesn't like a character it's okay if something doesn't work but I think to your point and you you use the perfect word I think Jar Jar definitely became a synecdoche for what people saw as um the faults of a movie that they had waited for years for and also Given the fact that the internet was at such a tipping point of so many newbies coming into the internet, I wonder if it was also a synecdoche for that, you know, that Jar Jar represented the new, the change, the um, letting new people into this fan community that some people did not want young new people coming into.
0: Oh, so you mean the thirty-something-year-old uh, people who waited online did not want something that worked for the fourteen-year-old? Uh, as maybe when they were fourteen, the Ewoks worked for them.
2: I wonder, and I'm also—it's so funny when when I'm talking about it worked for them as kids. You know, so many people who I talked to, both on the record and off the record, but also all of the comments we read from the Wayback Machine, when they're talking about Star Wars coming out for them as kids. And the ages they're citing are actually even younger. We're talking like single digits, like four to nine. Um, So yeah, I I think so. And interestingly, we're actually seeing something interesting now, which which is the kids who grew up with Jar Jar and loved Jar Jar, had the Jar Jar action figure, weren't online to voice their love of this character, are now voicing their love for this character.
0: And that's nice, but I have to go back to the idea. I'm sure you've seen these videos. That it was such poor storytelling and that the characters, none of the characters uh, represented anything or had character traits beyond what their actual goal or actions in the movie were. So I I don't know if you've seen any of this analysis, but why did people love Han Solo? Give me three character traits about (laughs) Han Solo. He was a rogue. He was dashing. He was sarcastic. All right, now give me three character traits about Anakin Skywalker character traits it's it's much harder even the comic relief in the first movie the droids oh r2d2 was puckish right almost literally and c3po was stuffy all right what was jar jar binks um you know goofy literally as you point out goofy from walt disney a a rehash of goofy just much worse characters and much worse storytelling
2: yeah and and not to um Kind of play a caricature of myself and play the uh, saintly diplomat here, but I I do just want to say, and I'm I haven't been in touch with George Lucas during the course of this show. You know, like I I didn't interview him, um, didn't communicate with him, um, so I don't know him. Um, but what I can say is that I do think that the pressure of bringing back this thing that means so much to so many people must have been so great. And I also believe, you know, he he was the creator, the architect of at least we can say one of the biggest movie franchises of all time. And that I think George Lucas had this impossible task of living up to what so many people saw as like perfect movies especially empire strikes back you know i i wonder if there was anything he could have done that w- that would have adequately satisfied such a massive fan base i think i think that is an artist's dilemma when something gets so big that it starts to mean something to people that you are not in control over anymore
0: yeah so on the show you talk about why Jar Jar could very conceivably be seen as a modern example of minstrelsy. Although since Star Wars is set in a galaxy a long time ago, and the prequels were even before that, maybe not modern, you know, way, way in the past version of minstrelsy. And maybe at this point in my interview, Corey will drop in Jar Jar saying anything. And anyone who doesn't know what Jar Jar sounds like will say, okay, you don't need to explain it any further.
2: Any, no. you're not going to believe it! Oh sparkly glowy. Now we're going to have all the time to spin together.
0: I love you, Annie. Yeah. Uh-huh. Annie. Yeah. You talk to experts who. Trace Jar Jar back to Goofy, who he was based on. And Goofy, the Disney character Goofy, was the original animator, talked about him being a uh, black child. And so the line is there. And intentional or unintentional, a decent case can be made that what we were seeing in Jar Jar was an example of minstrelsy. You complicate things a bit, to your credit, by talking to the actor who himself is uh, a black guy who's, it takes very seriously his identity, uh, representation, and explained how some of the accent that he did, which was his own creation, not prompted by anyone, was just how he talked to his cousins, his young cousins, to make them laugh. So it's all brilliant and complicated, but you come down on the place that that part of the criticism is legitimate, or at least is one that you agree with, right? I don't want to misstate your views.
2: No, you're not putting words in my mouth. You know, um, to be totally honest, I feel too close to the story to even have an opinion. And I I hope you know I'm not trying to back out of this question. I I just want to answer it as honestly as possible. It's just I I do feel so close to it, so close to the point where when even— you know, the uh, racial stereotype is identified, I quickly jump to wanting to say how it is so clear to me that this wasn't intended, Um, at least in the interviews that I've conducted and the research I've done. As for if I agree on it, you know, this is a tricky question, and I want to answer this both as honestly as possible and respectfully as possible. I think because I'm coming from a very socially progressive perspective on this. And I have, in fact, made work about representation on screen quite a lot. I mean, I mean, the thing that essentially launched my digital career was a, a video series called Every Single Word that edited popular movies down to only the words spoken by people of color. Like, I, I care about this stuff quite a lot. And I have written essays, made similar takes about representation. I think, to me and I say this in the show, but it is very easy for me to distance myself from people who made a Jar Jar hate website with images of Jar Jar's severed head. It's a lot harder to do that when people who I agree with ideologically are expressing these takes that are founded in things that I study and think about and read about and care about. So I think it's less that I agree with film critics, scholars who argue that Jar Jar was a racial stereotype, and more that I do agree with giving them space to be heard.
0: So to bring it back to uh, Jar Jar and Ahmed Best, I recognize your moves. Part of the brilliance of this is if... Ahmed Best was the main character, and people forgot that there was a real person behind Jar Jar Binks. The subtext of your entire podcast is, I'm going to make sure you know he's a real person. I'm going to give him an arc, and then like a lot of your work, I don't want to give away the ending, but it's a really nice story. It's a happy story, where he was, where he is now. And I do notice that in so much of your work, it's a happy story. I mean, what you do is you bring people together, pre- people who say, yes, I want to be on your podcast, and they almost always find common ground. Do you think that that is, it's nice to have a happy story, but do you think it's a little misleading? Um,
2: No, because I think the only reason that Jar Jar Binks has a happy ending is because of the amount of time that, that passed, right? Like, if I interviewed... Ahmed a few years after this all happened, it wouldn't have had a happy ending, right? And so I don't think it's misleading because, and you know, I will call myself out for hypocrisy, I will criticize myself, but I will say that I have done my very best to present every story that I've encountered as honestly and as fairly as possible. And I think that we crave happy endings which include the participants in the story, crave the happy ending. I will also say that there are a number of conversations with People Who Hate Me episodes that don't end well, that end with, you know, the people being like, this sucked and the only reason it's out is that they both gave permission for it to be released you know oh, like
0: okay. so it's a skewed sample
2: so the ones yeah and really well, that's that's
0: the thing just I, like the guys on cops who say no you can't have my you, i'm not signing the release right so you can put me on Tuesdays. i
2: never ever thought that i would be compared to the show cops but <laughs> here we are <laughs> what you're gonna do it's going what on my resume um i think that yeah so i i don't think it's unfair but i don't think it's unfair because i worked very and my with along with my producers we worked very hard to make sure that a sense of time was apparent in this and it's like i mean in episode 5 we go from the year 2000 to the year 2015 you know like i we are naturally faced with the limits of time and y- you can't give people a a a podcast with a duration of 15 years to listen to, you know, like I, I understand that.
0: Yeah. Even at double speed, right. Double speed. Then that's seven and a
2: half years. We can't do that. (laughs) Um, but I do think that, um, what I hope people take away with this is it, it only became a happy ending recently. And what I'm interested in is shortening that time for the happy ending.
0: The name of the podcast is the redemption of Jar Jar Binks. The creator, writer, host of it is Dylan Marin, who's also a writer on Ted Lasso and does the Conversations with People Who Hate Me podcast. Dylan, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. And for Pesca Plus subscribers, you, my friends, you can listen to an even longer version of the interview, 50 minutes worth, not a second, not a moment of downtime. Just a fascinating interview with me and a person who doesn't hate me, but I guess I was trying to make him hate me, Dylan Maron. No, no, that's not true. And in this conversation, we take a deep dive into internet culture and cancel culture and Dylan Maron's two camp theory. It's a good camp. It's a good theory. You definitely want to listen to this one. You can subscribe or upgrade to this or the ad-free version of the podcast at subscribe.mikepesco.com. And now the spiel. Barbies made a billion dollars at the box office and given flight to the aspirations of millions of young girls who've absorbed the message of empowerment, especially if you look like Margot Robbie. Or not, there were many other varieties of beautiful Barbies to take inspiration from, powerful, strong, accomplished women who only became subservient to men immediately upon encountering the very idea of the patriarchy.
2: No, I won't let you do just one appendectomy. But I'm a man. But not a doctor.
0: Can I talk to a doctor?
2: You are talking to a doctor.
0: Can I need a clicky pen? No. A sharp thing? No.
2: There he is. Doctor! Did somebody get security.
0: Okay, okay. The movie explains that these strong, powerful women, or dolls, were powerless to resist even the smallest dollop of kensplaining once the idea of the patriarchy entered their environment. It was likened to the indigenous people with European diseases in the 1500s. But if that was one small imperfection of an otherwise, if not life-affirming, joyous on to sisterhood, then a pay-on to pink, there were a few more, and I wanted to go over a few of them. There was much praise, effusive praise. So now a bit of a roundup of Barbie shade from the fair to the rebuttable. Good critique here is Emily Bazelon on the political gab fest.
2: So the kid in this movie starts off great. She's like this cynical, sassy teenager. She's wearing, I think, painter's pants. She's
0: like not into the whole Barbie dress up scene. Loved her.
2: Then she's wearing like a fancy pink dress and she kind of stops talking and becomes like this much more passive kind of princess looking girl. And I know that that happens when she's in Barbie land, but it was super disappointing to me that she couldn't hang on to her like rebel teenage girl thing.
0: I think it's a good point. There's an answer to this in the internal logic of the movie. It's not like it's an inconsistency or screenwriting loose end. But Emily's generally right. The teenager, actually, she was a tween, I think, embodies the kind of proto-riot girl who has no use for Barbie. And then after her type is established, because the movie felt, I guess, they had to address that prevalent type of person in the world. The movie lost use for her. Her point of view is not engaged with much after that. The actual character just has a warm mother-daughter moment with the character played by America Ferrara, the mom. Dan Savage on his Savage Lovecast also made a good point. It's about a minute and a half long. It follows Dan's delight in the presence of Earring Magic Ken, an icon to the gay community, supposedly the best-selling Ken doll ever, until Dan Savage himself pointed out to Mattel Brass that this Ken doll accessorized with what very much appeared to be a cock ring. Anyway.
1: As happy as I was to see Earring Magic Ken in the movie, I was sad not to see boys playing with Barbies. Barbie goes into the real world where she encounters kids who played with Barbie when they were younger, And Barbie has to think about the complicated and sometimes conflicting feelings girls have about her. Barbie thought she was empowering little girls, while little girls, once they outgrew their Barbies, saw Barbie differently. I don't think the movie needs to be about gay boys. There's a quick nod to the existence of gay people once Barbie and Ken make it to the real world in the form of some gay guys at the beach ogling Ken. But you know who was left out of this movie? All those gay men out there who played with their sister's Barbies or their friend's Barbies when they were boys and were made to feel ashamed of themselves. Some were bullied for it. Some were forbidden from playing with Barbies. Some made the mistake of asking their parents for Barbie dolls for their birthdays or Christmases and got yelled at, shamed, bullied by their own families. And I wanted a glance in their direction, a nod to the little brother of the gay best friend, who loved playing with Barbies too. Those boys are more important to Barbie's story. They're more important to Barbie's legacy than Earring Magic Ken. And if I had to choose between seeing one of those boys in this movie and seeing Earring Magic Ken in this movie, I would have picked one of those boys.
0: Bill Maher, who has had Dan on his show many times, was more critical of all aspects of the movie, calling it man-hating. I'd say the movie was, you know, more like patriarchy-hating or toxic-man-hating, but it didn't especially go out of the way to articulate what aspects of masculinity weren't toxic or didn't overlap with the patriarchy. That's okay. It didn't have to. Some other movies do that. One could argue many other movies do that. But Bill also argues, I shall quote, spoiler alert, Barbie fights the patriarchy right up to the Mattel board who created her consisting of 12 white men the patriarchy. Except there's a Mattel board in real life and it's seven men and five women. Okay, not perfect even, Stephen, but not the way the board in the movie, which takes place in 2023, is portrayed and not really any longer deserving of the word patriarchy goes on to say the real mattel board is a pretty close mirror of the country where 45 percent of the 449 board seats filled last year in fortune 500 companies were women truth is i'm not the one who's out of step i'm living in the year we're living in barbie is fun i i enjoyed it but it is a hashtag zombie lie the board Bill is talking about is the board of directors. There are different boards within corporations and boards of directors are usually well-paid, high-flying leaders in other fields who you invite on your board for the reflected esteem. These board members meet once a year and are paid, at Mattel at least, $300,000 in fees and equity. California actually mandates every corporate board of significant size to have a woman on it, though the courts have called that unconstitutional. That's one of the reasons why almost half of the 449 board seats in last year's Fortune 500 that were filled went to women, so not even half. Part of that was court-mandated, and those are only the board seat's filled last year. It's not even the biggest flaw in the argument because the actual executive officers, meaning the people who run the country day to day, aren't the board of directors. We're talking about the people who make all the important decisions, who make millions of dollars a year. And of the seven executive officers listed on Mattel's corporate governance page, six are men. According to a search of public records, it seems that the top six compensated Mattel employees are men. 45% is not the number to focus on when it comes to corporate governance. 10.4% might be better. That's the number of female CEOs in the fortune 500 in the global 500, the biggest companies in the world, not just the U S it drops to 5.8%. So 471 of 500 of the biggest companies in the world are run by men. Let's look at the Russell 3000. So more companies six times as much as the 500 and a total of 186 Russell, 3000 companies have female chief executives, 6.2%. Now, the Russell 3000 and other companies have uh, done a survey and there are more corporate suites being occupied by women. Executives overall, not just the CEOs, are now well over 20%. There's a prediction for parity by the year 2050. But for many reasons, women's progress in the corporate world is slow, much slower than the corporate board stats, which represent the window dressing of the corporate dream house. One more Barbie and Ken fetch. It's from the New Yorker. I've seen this point elsewhere. Quote, by making Patriarchy the villain of the story, the movie glides over the decades in which Mattel, the company that makes Barbie, waffled on racial representation. They quote Barbie expert Rob Goldberg, the author of a book on Barbie about to come out, saying the Barbie world you see in the film is Malibu Barbie from 1971. But in reality, the racial diversity of the Barbie character wasn't there yet. Well, yes, that's true. Barbie introduced a black friend for Barbie, talking Christie, in 1968, but there were no black Barbies, per se, until 1980. But the point about how the movie depicts a Barbie world with more racial diversity than was in the actual Barbie world of 1971? should take into account the actual real world and America's diversity in 1971. This happens all the time. You often hear a claim about how there wasn't a black network news anchor until 1983 or how the Supreme Court was all white until 1967. All true. Why? Of course, because America has a racist past, because there were barriers in place to specifically discriminate against black people and to prevent their advancement, but also... Realize in 1971, the USA was overwhelmingly white. It was 87.7% white, according to the census, with Hispanics making up only 4.4% of the population, and many of them then, and still now, think of themselves as white. My point is that the Barbie movie makers had a choice. They could show the Malibu Barbie-based world under the Malibu Barbie diversification of the year Malibu Barbie was introduced 1971 or they could say wow that's too white we're going to update it for today we're going to show lots of diversification even if that risks giving the impression that there was much more integration that an American of 1971 would have seen within the Barbie universe but of course the choice is easy you have to show diversification. You should show diversity today, especially because the 1971 world, as monochrome as it is, would certainly be upsetting to modern American audiences. Part of the reason for that is that modern American audiences are barely 60% white. One reason that the media of 1971 and earlier years wasn't diverse was racism and segregation and writing off minority communities and consumers but another reason we almost never take into account that the media of the past was more white was because America of the past was more white overwhelmingly white in fact the whiteness of America in 1971 is almost exactly equivalent to the whiteness of Great Britain today it's hard for barbie of course, to carry all these burdens, especially in those heels. It's hard for women too, which is a point the movie makes. It's subtle, but it's in there. Still, it was more fun than not, and it was a pleasure to once again engage in a shared cultural gathering with a passionate debate being key to that overall experience. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, senior producer Joel Patterson, CLO of Peachfish Productions, and inspiration for my Bill Maher quotes, Michelle Pesca. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for Advertising Inquiry. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Peru, Gperu, Peru. And thanks for listening. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie.
1: Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi Ken. Hi Ken. Hi Ken. I got us both ice cream. Cool. Hi Barbie. 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 Hi
0: Barbie. Hi Ken. Hi Barbie. 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 Oh, hi
1: Alan. There are no multiples of Alan. He's just Alan. Yeah, I'm confused about that.